1: a podcast channel on the new books network i'm ethan besser frederick a host of the channel and today we'll be talking to max deerdorf about his new book a tale of two granadas custom community and citizenship in the spanish empire 1568 to 1668 max welcome to the show thanks for having me ethan i'm happy to be here thanks for the invitation was, of course i was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself
0: so I'm an assistant professor
1: at the University of Florida.
0: Uh, I did my, um, did my PhD at Notre Dame. Uh, I've been here at Florida now for about five years. Uh, I teach classes both on the history of Latin America and on modern Spain, uh, and I'm very excited. Uh, I've just designed a new grad class on law and empire that I'm gonna teach for the first time uh, next
1: semester. Well, that makes a lot of sense given the nature of this book. I'm sure that'll be a great class. I hope so. (laughs) Speaking of which, how did you come to write this book? I'm really curious about this because it's such a multi-site, big concept uh, uh, approach to these questions.
0: You know, so uh, I, uh, there are so many different ways to tell the story. Um, But one is that I was actually not a history major in undergrad. I was a, Spanish lit uh major and um when I decided I wanted to go to back to grad school which was after about five years after graduating um I decided I didn't want to go into lit I wanted to go into history uh um but I didn't really have a whole lot of training in history um so I kind of uh started taking classes at night and we were this was way back in the mid-2000s when we were still in kind of like the post 9-11 world and I had traveled in Latin America. I was interested in Latin America, but I was also really curious about um, these these stories about convivencia between Christians, Jews, and Muslims that I had heard while I was a, a junior year abroad student um, uh, back in undergrad uh, in Madrid and uh... I I suddenly got a lot more curious about uh, that the kind of issue of religious coexistence um, in ways that I had not been interested when I was a 20-year-old, kind of, I was, um, uh, I remember being 20 years old and fascinated by the Spanish Civil War uh, and kind of very 20th century history. And I think 9-11 um, kind of took me out of the 20th century in some ways. And so uh, I was, when I started kind of becoming a historian and looking for uh, first in a master's program and later in the PhD uh, for a project that I might do, I started reading and I realized that there were no stories about um, Moriscos in the Um, uh, Spanish-Americans. This is before Kaya Cook uh, published her book. Um, But uh, so I, I... I, I kind of first hooked onto that, and then I started to realize that that was that was going to be a really complicated dissertation topic to work on. But I was really still very interested in kind of uh, how religion mattered in empire, uh, and uh, I stumbled ac- uh, a- a- across a couple sets of um, primary sources. Uh, one having to do with 16th century Colombia, and another having to do with um, 16th century Southern Spain, that made me feel like the 1560s and the 1570s were a really crucial moment. And um, I started reading them together in ways that um, I hadn't seen anybody else do. And I, I, I just had a sense that there was a story there. <laughs> and uh, against some better advice I got at some point, I, uh, I, I stuck with it. Um, and uh, that's kind of the story of the genesis of, uh, of the project I could ramble on for, for quite a bit longer. Um, but, uh, uh, but you should stop me from doing so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think a lot of good research projects on connecting these literatures that maybe aren't obviously are already connected in the scholarship. I think a lot of them have origins like this. And well, surely these have to be related somehow, or surely these have to be connected somehow. Well, let's try and illustrate the connections between these two Granadas in the, uh, with the introduction. And I, I almost have to start by apologizing. I'm not even sure if my question is really going to capture the, the breadth of what the introduction lays out, which lays it out much more uh, concretely and clearly than I might hear. Uh, the introduction uh, demonstrates how ambitious the book really is. It covers Granada, the Iberian city, city and former independent Muslim state, and then the New Kingdom of Granada, which is roughly corresponds to modern day Colombia. And you argue that in the midst of an empire-wide reevaluation of law in the 16th century, which is happening for a variety of reasons, including the Council of Trent, you argue that in the midst of all of this, both indigenous people in the New Kingdom of Granada and Moriscos, or descendants of Muslims who have since converted to Catholicism in Granada, both invoked a notion of Christian citizenship, which is a really interesting analytic that immediately you have to sort of say, well, what do I mean by citizenship in in the 16th century? Uh, And so could you help our readers understand a little bit what sorts of debates and, and questions are going on in the 16th century in both Granadas that you gravitate around. And we'll obviously detail them more uh, in each of the chapters that we'll cover next.
0: Yeah, so this this book and this introduction uh, have been kind of a challenge to write because um, kind of the historiography on 15th, 16th century Spain, and then the historiography on uh, 16th century Latin America uh, have fixated on somewhat different issues about kind of the construction of society and figuring out how to write them together um uh was challenging um so uh, so okay let me start with the Spanish peninsula who that has kind of a storyline that traces back um uh, into the medieval period uh, kind of a that's kind of very short and fast um late medieval history of uh of Christian Spain is that um kind of ever more ar- organized monarchies from the north are kind of pushing down against a frontier in the south um trying to uh, conquer in the kind of 13th century atomized um Islamic sultanates and then uh by 1248 there's um, we get to this period of stasis where there's the the Nazareth dynasty, which is holding on to what we now know as Granada um and will uh and will rule it for uh, another two and a half centuries. Um, but the other territories around it, and what we now know as Andalusia have kind of fallen to Christians um in Castile. And uh on both sides of this border of this frontier between the Nazareth Sultanate and and Castile, Castile and Leon um our our late medieval history is about the the coexistence the convivencia of of Christians Muslims and Jews we we have uh, uh, uh territories that are ruled by uh rulers of different religions but who um, tolerate the uh, those of uh, the uh, uh, different at least monotheistic religious backgrounds um and but nominally tolerate them but uh we have a story in the christian lands about um increasing uh animosity towards from christians towards non-christians especially jews um there's a storyline that goes from uh, that identifies a set of persecutions at pogroms starting in 1391 and um Going all the way to 1492, the expulsion, um, and we watch Castile and León, <clears throat> and especially uh, after it conquers Granada, become increasingly more Catholic um, and less tolerant, um, uh, less the the standard of convivencia that it had been, and we get to the point um, after the the merger of. Uh, Castile and Aragon um with uh, the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabel um where eventually not only Judaism but Islam are made illegal uh I feel like I'm going to give you a 30 minute answer to this question uh, uh so um so uh, so the storyline that we tell about Spain is about this um uh during this period is this uh uh, narrowing of identity um, and uh, the kind of increasing fixation as um, uh, as a, a territory of not only primarily Catholics, but all Catholics. And uh, we get the expulsion of, of Jews in 1492, the expulsion of all Muslims from Castile by 1502, um, from the, uh, the Spanish kingdoms by 1526. Uh, but then in the midst of all of this, this increasingly Catholic monarchy expands to include uh, the Americas with the conquest of uh, what many refer to as the Aztecs and later the Incas and many other s- smaller ethnicities between kind of uh, the late 1510s and um, 1550-ish. And these people aren't Christians or, you know, when they're conquered, they're certainly not Christians. Uh, slowly, they start to become Christians. And so this process that we watched happen in Spain, um, where uh, it had become a, a place for only Catholics um, in the Americas, the timeline is completely different. But something happens when uh, with the Protestant Reformation going on in Europe um, that, uh Spain has a king who's also the Holy Roman Emperor uh, and um, who has kind of taken on a role as this standard bearer of Catholicism, who's trying to establish a a universal Catholic monarchy, who's trying to, um, uh, to try to, to keep the Catholic world together. And, um, He's a great supporter of this Catholic reform movement, of the Council of Trent, um, that uh, tries to deal with some of the issues that the Protestant Reformation had brought up. Uh, And it turns out something that I figured out when weaving the two stories of uh, the Spain with its deep, long issues about religion and the Americas, where those deep, long issues uh, about religion have been transplanted and take on a life of their own. The monarchy tries tries to 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 unify its policy in the two spaces and in the two very different spaces using the Catholic reform movement of the Council of Trent, which finalizes in 1563. Uh, and and uh, I had seen the literature kind of the historiography identifies the Council of Trent as important in both places, but it really, it really got driven home to me when first I went out there looking for um, religious councils and synods celebrated in, in Spain and in its market, monarchy. And I found out that there was um, uh, an, an incredible increase of uh, ecclesiastical legislation during this period. Um, and that uh, a Lot of uh, uh kind of the contours of Catholic identity uh got expressed and defined in those councils and synods, and they and there was just this explosion kind of between the 1560s and about 1620. Uh, and we can kind of identify what um the uh, Spanish ecclesiastical world is trying to identify as kind of core elements of um, a, a identity of the subjects of the Spanish crown by what they promote and also by what they uh, try to criminalize. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, this becomes so very important because by the time we get to the end of the 16th century, essentially, Every person born in this monarchy is getting baptized after they're born, um, uh, even uh, even in the Spanish Americas. So uh, there, uh, there are so many other kind of like uh, uh, r- rivering trails that I could follow off from this uh, from this central center line of argumentation, um, uh, but. <clears throat> uh, I, I will tell you that I realized that councils and synods were so very important. And I also uh realized that there's this within this kind of uh 60-year period, there's there's also like a two-year period that I uh that I see as um uh kind of the most important planning and execution moment of this, which is between 1566 and 1568. Um when uh the crown decides that it's no longer, the the, um, the crown has kind of uh, experimented with private sphere toleration of its uh, many probably crypto Muslim subjects in Granada. And uh, in 1566, it decides that um, it, it wants to make sure that its subjects are both Catholic on the street and at home at the hearth. And um, we get this kind of wave of increasing persecution between 1566 and 1568, which leads to essentially a war of secession, the War of the Alpujarras in the Morisco south of Spain. And the monarchy wins that war and holds on to Granada and um, punishes the secessionists. But that war happens at the same time when the most important um, kind of planning mission for expanding church reform to the Americas happens in 1568. Uh, uh, We have the Junta Magna, where the famous uh, Peruvian viceroy Francisco de Toledo. meets with a lot of people who are also handling the Morisco problem in the South um, and and, um, works out plans for how to kind of further stitch uh, the people of of the Americas and their um, communities into uh, the the patchwork of the Catholic um, Spanish empire.
1: I think that that answer hits on the, the major themes. It's a post-conquest imperial society trying to manage diversity, especially through the means of religion. And it just seems to keep hitting these crises. And we're not going to stop hitting crises through, through the end of the book. Uh, and and uh, with that, let's move into some of these uh, appropriately named Iberian antecedents, which is also the title of your first chapter, of uh, the various concepts that Spanish administrators bring to the table when they try and address these questions and these problems. And then ultimately these rebellions, this first chapter examines how new Christian and old Christian became a very primary lens and division in Iberian society and how administrators use that to answer some of these questions. And these are terms that some of our listeners are probably familiar with if they're familiar with Latin American history, but could you outline this process of first, what these terms meant? And then secondly, what did they come to mean in an administrative sense?
0: Right, so uh, uh, these terms, new Christian and old Christian, uh, if you read kind of any kind of bureaucratic documentation are incredibly important and ubiquitous kind of through the end of the colonial period. Um, uh, So uh, there is, um, there are a wave of pogroms against Jews in Spain. Uh, starting in 1391 and um, continuing through the 15th century. And uh, at sword point, many Jews um, decide to convert to Christianity. And um, there's a period uh, that uh, might stretch into the 1420s, starting from 1391, um, where these converts... And I think it's probably uh, important to point out that, um, that that well these converts are increasingly integrated into Christian society, but this creates some problems. And the reason why this creates some social problems is because uh, the kind of medieval convivencia tolerance had been based on segregation. So um, Jews were welcome to, to to practice Judaism, but they weren't, Um uh they weren't welcome uh as members and officials in Christian institutions and Christian society. And so when these uh um when Spanish Jews converted to Christianity, they suddenly were they had access to a a whole lot of uh uh professional options to institutions that had been closed off to them before. And so uh, uh, we have a, a period of um, integration, uh, but also a sense from a, many of those whose, whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who had been Christians that these new converts hadn't entirely bought into the Christianity to which they had nominally converted. And so um, their detractors would accuse them of being new Christians, or this other word, converso, pops up, um, and uh, the assumption the the inference with the term new Christian is that they were kind of incomplete Christians, right, and completely integrated into Christian society, and the story of the 15th century is just continuing ongoing uh, kind of eruptions of animosity between a group that starts to identify itself as old Christian eh, in contrast to this group of new Christians um, that it has identified who um, perhaps uh, are, have um, eh, uh, entered institutions, you know, municipal councils and uh, the church uh, and have kind of displaced some of the uh, so-called old Christians from what, uh uh professional positions that they might have thought of as their birth, birthright. So, so we get these terms, old Christians and new Christians and um, people like David Nirenberg have done a great job for the medieval period um, uh, writing about how um, uh, the whole process where this, this kind of, um, this animosity between social groups popped up. Um, So this, uh, this kind of um binary survives past the 15th century uh even after the expulsion of the jews in 1492 because there we have these subsequent waves of uh, of converts who very often are less than willing um or you know only minimally willing to convert um and who maybe in their heart of hearts aren't devout Catholics. Um, And uh, so uh, the 16th century, we continue to see these same set of lasting animosities, not just between the people who've recently converted and uh, the the longstanding members of the Christian community, but even the grandchildren uh, of those converts, just because perhaps there are ethnic tensions that are more than religious. Um, And so uh, for a very long time, anyone who wants to become a priest or perhaps is uh, applying for uh, a a job in the higher echelons of uh, uh, imperial administration will, um, with their kind of equivalent of their 16th century CV, will but typically, uh, submit some kind of information about the purity of their lineage. Lineage, because um, uh, uh, religious institutions definitely and secular institutions sometimes require um, uh, uh, full old Christian lineage. And this um, uh, this is often referred to as the purity of blood statutes. So those evolve in the 15th and 16th centuries. And they the purity of blood statutes um, are uh, pop up in a number of institutions in the 16th century, but they're not widespread and everywhere until about the 1550s. And um, there are perhaps a number of different ways to explain why this happens then. My particular hypothesis that I think you'll read in the book is that um, uh, Prince Philip, who will become King Philip II, does a lot of traveling in Protestant countries and um and he ties um conversion from Judaism in his mind to to what has become the Protestant problem in uh in his his father's um empire, the the Holy Roman Empire. Um and uh, so uh, there's kind of an increasing persecution of families of converts in the 16th century.
1: It's in this context of persecution, of seemingly a more narrow notion of who can really belong uh, to, to the social body, that you this into your second chapter, where again, this sort of opens back up again, setting up the great tension throughout the rest of the book. In the second chapter titled Politics, Reform, and the Emergence of Christian Citizenship, evaluates the impact of the Council of Trent, which as a reminder is 1545 to 63, and its notions of political consolidation and uniformity of administration. And I think a lot of our listeners maybe primarily think of this council in theological and religious terms. And obviously, the book touches on a number of religious elements. But could you elaborate what was the significance of this council when it comes to these kinds of administrative and maybe citizen and political status questions that we've been discussing already?
0: Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right that uh, we tend to treat the Council of Trent uh, in doctrinal terms. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's very interesting to scholars who study like family history, the history of marriage, because um, the church's uh, norms around uh, marriage change and um, there's an affirmation of uh, you know that, that's one side. On the other side, there's an affirmation of seven the seven sacraments. Um, a there's an, an attempt to kind of reform the governance of the church beyond uh, 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 kind of doctrinal theological matters. Uh, but I think from my point of view, and I and and I think if uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure that I'm the only person to ever said this but I think uh I I am perhaps the person to have said this the loudest in this book um <laughs> that this uh this tridentide movement is incredibly important to the governance of the empire um uh, because I think the Spanish monarchy sees church institutions as the way to hold its incredibly sprawling empire together. This is an empire uh, that by 1560 includes uh, what we now know was Spain, its parts Castile and Aragon, Navarre, uh, Granada, Italian territories. It includes um, uh, the Low Countries, Franche uh, Comte, South America, most of South America um, up to, you know, Mesoamerica and by the end of the 1560s, it'll also include the Philippines. Um, it includes a lot of people from so many different places with practically nothing in common except their king. Uh, and the crown is um, has uh, had underwritten its military expansion in the 15th and 16th century, Um with the approval of the Pope and this kind of idea of this, uh, global crusade. It started out with this crusade against the expanding Islam of the Ottoman empire. uh, and it turned into a different thing once, um, uh, uh, conquest of the Americas started, um, started rolling, but, um, the ottoman empire is incredibly important and i think latin we latin americanists almost never give credit to the ottoman empire for how very important it is for uh spanish I- uh, identity instru- uh, construction in the um in this 16th century especially but um it, the crown decides essentially in the 1550s and 60s that the way to hold this empire together is by uh religious uh, the expansion of religious institutions the crown has patronage over um uh the crown has control of the church in many of its territories in the way that not many monarchies in Europe have control of their churches this is kind of a, a relatively a, a special Spanish thing and um uh the crown uses its, its ability to place, top personnel to name bishops in in most of the parts of his empire as a way to control church policy in ways that support royal policy and so as soon as the council of Trent ends in 1563 it's met in three long sessions that have stretched out over 18 years that was really hard to pull off Um, uh, uh, but it was Finally finished in 1563, within months, uh, the Spanish crown has uh, adopted uh, the reforms of the Council of Trent for all of its territories. Uh, Something that as far as I know uh, is not true of other major monarchies in Western Europe. I think uh, the French, it's sometime in the 17th century when they finally fully embrace the Council of Trent. And what we have the monarchy pushes at breakneck speed all of its territories across the empire to celebrate new religious councils that bring together all the major uh uh, figures archbishops bishops and their um, subordinates um, together in religious council meetings in 1564 through 1567 to um essentially rewrite their administrative documents for their whole territories in ways that integrate um uh these reforms from the council of trent um uh, uh that's a very complicated process there's some wonderful literature on this in spanish coming out of spain um uh, but uh and what turns what happens especially in the the formerly islamic south of spain and the former and the um and the territories of the Americas is that we have these religious councils that not only kind of rewrite Catholic reform from uh, write Catholic reform from Europe into the their functioning of their churches, but they also develop these really anthropological um evaluations of the the inhabitants of their diocese, and they. Um, they are very intent on identifying what a normative subject of the crown should look like and what, um, what kind of behaviors that are common to their area uh, might undermine the the project of uh, uh, Catholic cohesion that they're, uh, they're trying to put together. And, um, and Between the 1560s and the 1580s, when we have some very famous councils in Peru and Mexico, um, uh, we get these statements through these councils and um, some synods uh, about where normative Spanish identity is and what's outside of that normative Spanish identity, things that um, uh, canon law allows them to criminalize. specifically explicitly criminalized through wording in these uh, uh councils and synods the same thing happens um, in the Morisco south of Spain and so um we get these uh documents that we historians who um, who study subaltern communities of this um uh this um, monarchy um, that we go back to again and again because they're great for um for for identifying, you know, what does Andean society look like? Well, we know uh, because the councils tell us what Andean society looks like and what what they wish they would change. Um, but but uh, but what we um, historians of, of these communities have focused less on is um, is how these councils and synods were part of a project to To rewrite normative subjecthood, and um, and I argue throughout the book, kind of starting with these chapters, that this is where um, a, a Christian uh, uh, citizenship gets uh, essentially defined, and. Hold on. There was one more thing I wanted to say for, uh, about this. I should have made a note as I was talking. Um, uh, uh, we get what's something. What's so interesting to me is that we get uh, a whole lot of new legislation about how education is supposed to happen. And this is where, kind of, um, uh, on a major scale throughout the empire, we start getting regular weekly instruction in uh, kind of elements of uh, of Catholic doctrine. For every kid, (laughs) for every kid who grows up uh, within the empire, um, uh, this this movement has kind of started around a little bit before 1500. And finally, everywhere, there's the kind of a common kind of basic Christian schooling moment that's happening in every single parish across the empire um, mandated through these councils and synods. And something that I argue in the book and I and I think. Perhaps some some other scholars I'm sure will want to argue with me, but that this is part of a politics that is um, looking for an alternate avenue for identity construction that's not about blood purity. That um, this uh, the the age of the Council of Trent is um, writing plans for integrating the empire that are about um, coherence in doctrine, um, and doctrine um, and identity ideas throughout the empire but that don't um that uh, that don't necessarily create two-tiered citizenship between old Christians and new Christians and these are two different visions of how the empire should work and neither side to be fair neither side completely wins throughout the colonial period throughout the old, old regime uh they exist in constant tension and uh, in uh, some place Christian, uh, some places Christian uh, citizenship will be stronger, and in others, um, blood purity ideas will be stronger, um, and they wax and wane with time and um, uh, 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 but um, but the the kind of alternative to um, uh, so, blood purity, Christian citizenship
1: emerges in this 1560s period. The next chapter picks up this Christian citizenship and looks at it in a very contested situation. Uh, third chapter is titled Moriscos, Arabic Old Christians, and Spanish Jurisprudence, 1492 to 1614. And it examines how these concepts of both blood purity and then Christian citizenship play out in Granada, especially with synods and policies and ultimately culminating in a rebellion. So could you talk a little bit about how these are contested in Granada and Spain, the sort of first of our two Granadas that we're addressing, and how many different sides of this conflict use the notion of Christian citizenship?
0: great right. so um, eh, in the territories of Granada, again, uh, finally conquered and integrated uh, uh, into Castile's monarchy in 1492. Um, At first, after that 1492 conquest, the people of this territory, um, uh, for having laid down their arms and having surrendered, um, had been granted the the right to maintain their legal system, um, uh, uh, to uh, maintain their Islamic religion, uh, but those rights were ostensibly removed after an uprising about 10 years after the conquest. Um, So the story of the first half of the 16th century is um, about uh, uh, a a population in this territory that has nominally converted to Christianity because they've been given a choice either after your uprising, either you convert to Christianity or you um, self deport. Um, And um, the, the great majority of commoners stayed, many elites left towards North Africa. Uh, but the truth is that um, many of those in Granada who stayed were uh, lackluster Christians. They were Christians because they had to be. We have some um, some very sincere converts. Uh, we see most of these very sincere converts in the, the, the bigger cities, I think. Um, in the countryside, the countryside is... Uh, is uh islamic just beyond the surface my personal opinion um but uh in the 1560s the crown decides right after the end of the council of trent the crown decides that um elsewhere tolerating uh a tolerating religious division had led to um the collapse of societies and that it, it wasn't going to continue um, tolerating um, crypto Muslims in Granada, and the fifteen at the beginning of 1567, we get some kind of very a pragmatic sanction that is s- kind of severe, and by the native community is seen as persecutorial. <clears throat> that leads within kind of about a year and a half to um, an uprising uh, from the crown's point of view. It's just spelled out. Um, we are a Catholic monarchy. You have to be Catholic. You can't continue to um, embrace these uh, cultural behaviors, uh, speaking Arabic, um, uh, dressing like a, 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 like a North African where almost everyone is uh, Muslim. You can't do these things here because, um, uh, this uh, breaks down the unity of society. Well, <clears throat> um, uh, we have a, this Civil War, this War of Secession, 1568, 1570, 71. Um, and in the end, uh, there uh, m- during the war, many individuals in Granada were returned to open practice of Islam, I kind of make it clear that is- Islam had survived. Um, and that wasn't just paranoia of the monarchy. Um, uh, but uh, those who rebelled against the crown were deported outwards. Maybe half of the population stays, um, survives deportation. Um, this is the counting here is complicated, and I don't, to my, um, to my mind, the our historiography is not counted well. How many stay and how many leave? But. Um, but there is a lot of documentation amongst people, native Grenadans, who would like to stay, but have been told that they have to leave. And what we find, what I found when I was researching this book, is that um, uh, these native Grenadans are picking up the language of the, the councils and synods that happened right after um, uh, the Council of Trent. And they're um, uh, they're uh, picking up on the kind of expressions of normative Catholic identity that came out in that 1567 pragmatic sanction. And they're saying, sure, uh, my, my, my grandparents were Muslim, um, uh, but they converted and I am the kind of Catholic that these councils and synods and the pragmatic sanction are asking for. I would like to stay here. And a number of them make the argument that my family members converted before they were forced to convert. Um, And uh, so they say, we would like to be identified as people with full rights in the society. We would like to be called old Christians because of that voluntary conversion. And the crown, the crown's ministers um, uh, uh, in the Chancery tend to uh, approve, uh, petitions and litigation that follow this line of reasoning. And and this kind of goes against what we have been taught that old Christian and new Christian mean. Uh, we've been taught that old Christian, um, is in the blood and new Christian is in the blood. You know, you can't, you can't choose to be an old Christian. Um, but, uh, there is, um, tons of evidence here that there are uh, uh, native Granadans who, because their families converted at the right time, are old Christians. And this is something that, so there's this wonderful, there's this brilliant book um, uh, by Maria Elena Martinez, uh, Genealogical Fictions, uh, which I think is fantastic on many accounts. One of the things that really got me going uh, when I was starting writing the dissertation was that I thought she had gotten this particular point wrong. Uh, as she, um, I think uh, she, she didn't pick up that the Morisco question was different than the Converso question. Um, and so uh, in the case of the Moriscos, we see um, uh, numerous Moriscos who are naturalized into old Christian society in a way um that we've been taught not to expect people of jewish descent conversos, um to have been integrated and i chalked that up um to their having tapped into this current of christian citizenship that was on the uptake right at the kind of uh at the the moments of greatest contention between catholic crown and its um Uh, subjects in Granada.
1: This example in Old Granada or the city of Granada is really informative for the rest of the book uh, because your next chapter titled Cultivating the Christian Republic, the Kingdom of Granada, and the Archbishop Zapata de Cardenas, Archbishop Zapata is literally coming from or at least coming from his family estates in Granada to the new kingdom of Granada. So could you tell us a little bit about how Ecclesiast these ecclesiastic laws and administrative changes in the new kingdom of Granada, how they relate to some of what we've just discussed in, in the city of Granada.
0: So one of the things that I started, um, noticing when, uh, uh, I, uh, I was doing early research for this book and trying, um, to figure out a way to tell, um, the story of the Crown's former Muslims in the South and it's uh, um, Muisca subjects in what's now Colombia. When I try to, to tell these stories together, like how do you tell these stories together? Writing kind of comparative history or, um, is this comparative history? Uh, I think uh, when I was planning the the, the project, I, I thought of it as comparative history. I, what it ended up is, well, well, this is what it is, um, but, you know, writing two different storylines with different actors is hard. And um, and in some ways, it helps if you can figure out how to write them together to make them overlap in certain places. And something that I started realizing relatively early on is that major administrative figures at the very top, both of... Um, of uh, Ecclesiastical administration and secular administration are coming to Colombia with experience in Southern Spain, in uh, old Spanish Granada. And Luis Zapata de Cárdenas, the Archbishop in Bogota, Santa Fe de Bogota, uh, is really a great illustration of this. His family uh, was from kind of a a long line of frontier Christian frontier warriors that uh, going all the way back to the 13th century, who's um, who uh, on behalf of the military orders had conquered into four formerly Islamic territories and had kind of ruled over encomiendas uh, right on the border with Islamic um, Granada, and um, and he himself had been a soldier. In kind of the tradition of the men of his family, uh, had worked his way up to becoming a maestro de campo, which I I think uh, they on the battlefield manage uh, companies of about a thousand men. So this is it's kind of a uh, a big deal. But he's a guy who um, around his his midlife crisis was uh, kind of what he calls a deeper conversion to Christianity and deciding to leave the military life behind and enter the church and. He um he is assigned to uh the most crypto-Islamic town in Castile, Ornachos, um, and he starts there. Um and uh, so he even before he left Spain um was exposed to the immense diversity of the monarchy. He fought in battles all across Europe. And back home, he uh, he had inhabited spaces that were where he as a Catholic old Christian was a minority. Um, and I think that uh, uh, those experiences definitely shaped him and kind of his um, plans for problem solving. Um, but he is also very much a creature of this Age of the Council of Trent. He is um, uh, a reformer of strong convictions. Um, he had actually be- become regionally famous back home for uh, conducting a reform of uh, Franciscans locally and uh, around the region where he was born, and um, and uh, uh, and he was chosen to bring Tridentine Catholic reform to Colombia to the new kingdom of Granada. And, um, and so his plan when he goes to Bogota in 1572, gets there in 1573, his plan is to um, uh, uh, conduct um, visitations of his diocese and um, conduct one of these major councils um, uh, that had happened in Peru, that had happened in Mexico, Bogota has just recently been promoted from just a regular old bishopric to an archbishopric, and his plan is to conduct the major council that makes uh, uh wide provincial rules for um, the Catholic community. Well, he never he never actually celebrates that council, um, but he does uh, because of uh, disputes about jurisdiction of, of his archdiocese. Um, but he does uh, he, he does write up the equivalent of a synod that is um, very much in the spirit uh, of reform, of, of tridentine reform across Spain, but really matches up well in its kind of uh, anthropological focus with what's happening in Spain's Morisco South. Um, This kind of uh, sense that uh, to kind of to sow Catholicism in this conquered land, it's important to identify the contours of um, its cultural and religious alterity. Um, And so uh, we get his uh, constitutions and catechismo that um uh that have model sermons and that um, identify a lot of the cultural behaviors of the muiscas m- most often t- to try to eradicate those cultural behaviors of the muiscas um like uh his contemporaries in old granada and southern spain are trying to eradicate um uh andalusi islamic what they see as andalusi islamic cultural survivors. And so um we get some ecclesiastical legislation um uh uh from him that's um trying to um uh, that that's trying to uh, uh kind of wipe the slate clean so that um, this area can be made catholic. And I think if I remember rightly what I put in this chapter um I put a lot of effort into. I think this is where I did it. Uh, into reading synods and councils from across the Americas, and uh, identified some commonalities between what's going on in these synods and councils from as you know, as far south as Chile and as far north as Mexico. Um, there is really an effort right around here, 1570s, 1580s. 1590s to 1600 um, to uh, to establish regular weekly Christian uh, instruction as uh, as a must going on in every single parish, every single doctrina across the Americas. Um, also, to identify again some kind of like normative Catholic behaviors, um, a, 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 a kind of non-Catholic behaviors to be eradicated. And um, when we, when those of us who have studied uh, are interested in mm, identity citizenship have looked towards um, secular legislation for this kind of stuff, I think we've been looking in the wrong place Um, uh, because kind of the most coherent set of strategies um, that are uh, uh, being deployed through a network uh of kind of Imperial agents um who who are aligned with the monarchy um uh even though they aren't of the monarchy um that that work is going on in ecclesiastical uh legislation and not in secular legislation and uh, I try to make that case um, by showing kind of Temporal coincidences of of similar legislation happening all over um, North and South America during this period.
1: And Zapata is such a great figure to show how those ecclesiastic laws are made, but also the key role that those play in broader imperial and and monarchical rule, both as his role as a soldier, as an administrator in both Granadas. Uh, It's a very fascinating figure. I think you're right. It's a great kind of figure to tie together these two narratives you have going. The fifth and next and and last chapter of this first part of the book, as you frame it, is called Life in the City, the Casa Poblada and Urban Citizenship. And it focuses uh, again on Santa Fe, on Bogota. And it examines how these norms and policies we've discussed to this point respond to an immigration of a large indigenous population into the city. So, what are some of the challenges of this migration in this movement, and how do officials with all of this sort of knowledge and experience and custom and background that we've laid out in part one, how do they start to make sense of it?
0: So, uh, thanks for that very well-formulated question. Um, uh, I So first off, I might say that timelines across the Americas, for scholars of the colonial Americas, are kind of different. If you look at Mexico, if you look at Peru, which, you know, to this point have been the, the most studied areas, at least by um, the English speaking historical world. Um, eh, Colombia is kind of far away third. Um, what's happening in Colombia in the New Kingdom of Granada at this point is uh when we get to the 1570s, um the the even the core populations where the Spanish um, settlements are most uh uh, have the, where the Spaniards have the most number of settlers. Uh, the natives in those regions are not very Christian at this point. Um, there are some uh, converts to Christianity. Um, uh, we're still in a period where uh, native subjects of the crown have a choice whether they're converting to Christianity or not. Um, and most of them have chosen to not convert so far. But there, there are numbers Uh, who have decided not only to convert to Christianity, but increasingly um, make their lives interacting with Spaniards. And some of them have even chosen um, uh, of their own will to move into Spanish cities. And and in Bogota, a well-known city, uh, actually called Santa Fe during the period, um, and Tunja, which is less well-known, it's uh, about 100 miles away also, uh, also in, uh, in the Colombian highlands, um, eh, there the crown or the the Spanish settlers there don't really know what to do with these new Spanish speaking native converts to Christianity who are choosing to live among Spaniards. They can't decide if um, if they're a problem and they should be sent home back home to their native villages, um, or if they should be um, or if a place should be made for them in the Spanish city. And there's kind of some back and forth um, in these kind of this last third of the 16th century. But ultimately, um, uh, and I kind of try to pick that back and forth, ultimately um, the the Spanish settlers in Bogota um, and through there, uh, the, the administrative high court there, the uh, Audiencia, decide that they should stay if they um if they want to live among spaniards they should stay among spaniards um uh but um but that spaniards are going to need to keep an eye on them because they're you know like perhaps those uh new christians in the 15th century um those uh, descendants of Jews back in Spain, they're you know questionable uh, assimilation, and so what we get through um, uh, kind of uh, municipal ordinances that are established is a, a snapshot of this small community of willing converts into. Uh, into Catholicism who are also very willing to live among Spaniards rather than their native communities and um, uh, the the Spanish community is making a place for them um, to uh, to live as municipal citizens. Um, now municipal citizenship at this point in time um uh, I, I am really, building a lot on the wonderful work of Tamar Herzog here, who's defining nations, Um, uh, uh, kind of helped us uh, to think about what it means to be uh, a citizen before a nation state. Um, uh, uh, We have municipal citizenship in the Spanish empire. there's not Spanish citizenship, that's an, it's an insane thing to think about. People are too different, the empire is too wide, but people do um, uh, develop languages about rights and privileges um, uh, for people who are you know permanent members of society. Um, the word for that in the period is vecino, which today just means neighbor, but in, um, in the colonial period, uh, implied a lot more kind of integration and importance in the city, and we start to get some, um, we have relatively clear rules about how vecindad that citizenship applies um, to Spaniards in this colonial space. And we see that it starts to apply to some natives too at this point. Uh, and then the question of course um, is, you know, what are the, if you're not born into citizenship, how do you acquire it? And so the subsequent chapters um, are uh, going to be about um, kind of hammering that issue out, especially with people of mixed ethnic descent, mixed indigenous and Spanish descent. Um, the Spaniards have this idea of what citizenship looks like. And that means the Spaniards have an idea of what citizenship in their communities looks like um but one of the questions out there is can a person have double citizenship can you be a citizen of the spanish city in the colonies at the same time that you're a citizen of a native township 15 miles down the road or do you have to choose um and uh so I, that's the topic of you know the next chapter
1: yeah that makes a very clean transition to the next chapter which begins the second part of the book that looks at these conflicts uh, emerging as all of these principles we've sort of laid out start to get contested and, and reimagined in the Americas. And this next chapter, chapter six, titled The Roots of the Mestizo Controversy in the New Kingdom of Gramada, studies this from what you might call maybe the indigenous perspective a little bit more, from these uh, urban residing uh, indigenous people and mestizos, their their descendants, about whether or not they could inherit uh, specific rights and statuses in those indigenous villages. So, raising that very concrete question. So, could you talk about these sorts of cases and what they entailed, and how they played out, and what was so controversial about trying to belong to, to multiple places?
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, so uh, this s- story, um, uh, uh, the 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 chapter. This chapter is. Um, mostly written on the back of legal cases about two very famous men of mixed indigenous uh, descent, um, Diego de Torres and Alonso de Silva. They actually both are um, identified as nobles, so I should say Don Diego de Torres and Don Alonso de Silva, who are actually um, sons of Spanish conquistadors, but also uh, of native mothers. And um, typically at this point in time, Um, if, uh, Spanish conquistadors, uh, if they have native, uh, if they have children with native mothers, um, it's kind of, if they're married to those native mothers, it's very common to, um, to integrate those children into Spanish society. If they're unmarried, then, uh, that's much more dubious space. Um, uh, if the Spanish fathers are willing to go through, a, a post hoc legitimation process for their um for their children. Um they uh, there are clear avenues for the integration. If the fathers don't um don't go through those processes, then um, generally speaking, those children are not thought of as members of the Spanish uh, members of the Spanish society. Now what happened with Don Diego de Torres and Don Alonso de Silva is that the first was a legitimate son of a a Spanish father, and so meant to be integrated in Spanish society. And um, Don Alonso de Silva was legitimated um, post hoc, and also therefore meant to be integrated in Spanish society. But a wrench got thrown in the works when around 1570, they were both approached by members of the native community um, of different townships, Tormeque and Tivasosa. and invited to become the next cacique, the next you know chieftain of of, of those townships. Um, so but these two men were meant to be members of Spanish society, right? And you know, this is a smallish Spanish society. These towns, um, these big Spanish settlements in Colombia at this point have a few thousand people, right? If they lose one, especially the son of a conquistador, that holds that whole settlement is going to you know notice that they 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 they've lost the body from the count um and uh but these men are invited to be caciques because according to native traditions matrilineal traditions they're actually um in the line of succession uh uh for um the caciques to to lead those communities and um this becomes a really awkward issue because um, they're both very well educated in the you know Spanish kind of humanist tradition um they've gotten the best schooling Spaniards can offer um uh, in this colonial society uh, and um, and Don Alonso de Silva actually um, is uh 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 an assistant to the secretary of the high court and so he knows he knows how the legal system works um and so when these two men essentially are asked to and then accept defection to native society um there are uh, a whole lot of um powerful spaniards who say you can't do that um that's you uh you definitely can't be both and you you are very clearly spaniards and there's um it's completely inappropriate um that you would be representatives of the indigenous community and of course like wrapped up in this are like power issues because diego de torres at the very least is a a convinced las casas who um who who kind of sees himself as an advocate for the indigenous community against kind of like, uh, the terrible depredations of the settlers. Um, Alonso de Silva, I think probably uh, shares those uh, proclivities. Uh, He doesn't talk as loudly about them, but he, I think he's uh, around the drafting of a lot of um, petitions and paperwork around litigation. And so he's kind of, uh, he helps work things through the court. He has the um, uh, 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 the know-how at the tribunal, and um, and this all gets wrapped up. There are so many things going on that this this chapter is about multiple issues. But I'm you know, just trying to focus on the citizenship one. Um, basically, uh, uh, if these had been two nobodies, their defection might have been tolerated. Um, but they uh, are not only um, trying to exist in the two spaces um but also threaten to uh um undermine the fortunes of many powerful spanish conquistador and comenderos. and so their activities um uh are under the hot lights for almost two decades and they end up getting uh Involved in a ton of legislation, they're targeted by the most powerful people in um, the colony, and they end up um, getting uh, ruled against on uh, at the at the high court, and then ask for an appeal to the Council of the Indies. Diego de Torres ends up going to Spain um, uh, 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 in relation to this litigation twice and actually twice meets the king face to face. And um, essentially uh, in the long run, these two men lose um, and um, they're denied the ability to to kind of coexist in, uh, to exist in both Spanish and indigenous spaces. But the reason why they're denied I think is more about power issues um, of the early colony because uh, following Joanne Rappaport in my book, I identified a number of men with kind of similar backgrounds who, who managed to inhabit both spaces, um, much less problematically. But the, the issues of um, these two men, Torre and Silva, uh, are part of uh, a 20 year ongoing demographic kind of kind of a demographic turnover in, in these core settlements in Colombia that puts the mestizo issue, it, the many facets of the mestizo issue front and center. And it just kind of, it defines all political issues in that space um, for about
1: 20 years. Your next chapter, the seventh chapter, definitely continues on this issue, or the, the question of mestizaje in the mestizo priesthood, aptly titled. And it examines the other side of the coin, whether or not offspring of a quote unquote Indian parent could join and hold positions in Spanish colonial society, especially in those important church roles, which brings us all the way back to those questions about whether or not conversos could could hold those roles. So could you outline a little bit of what these questions looked like in this time period in the 16th century in the new kingdom of Granada and what some of the stakes were for those involved?
0: Yeah, so <clears throat> um uh, after the council of trent one of the kind of major reforms of the council of trent um was focused on uh putting uh the face of uh, the local face of catholicism in the idiom of uh of the uh of the catholic parishioners. and so um there was a big push to start um, um preaching and confessing in the vernacular, um, and, you know, no more saying mass in um, in, in languages that uh, prisoners couldn't understand, or rather uh, no more sermonizing in languages that prisoners couldn't understand. Um, uh, uh, and so the archbishop, Luisipate um, Cardenas, one of the things that he comes, decided to do is to... Um, uh, Ordain priests who can preach to the Muiscas in their Muisca language, and it turns out that uh, there are not very many full-blooded Spaniards who are um, have the linguistic capabilities and and the interest to become priests. And that uh, um, perhaps the greatest interest in in in, um, in serving this role comes from these um, mixed ethnicity children many of them of conquistadors. And so uh, Zapata de Cadna starts ordaining a lot of mestizos as priests. And um, canon law doesn't have any problem with this. Canon law thinks that's fine. Um, the church of the Vatican would have nothing to say about this. Um, but uh, but Zapata is doing it this at a moment when uh, both Mexico and Peru have had big scares about a mestizo uprising. Um, uh, One about uh, uh, the mestizo son of uh, Enon Cortes in Mexico, um, one around uh, a mestizo community in Cusco. Um, And there are many Spanish settlers who see this great influx of mestizos into into the spanish church as kind of a threat to uh uh the stability of the colony and so um there's a huge backlash um locally uh you know anybody anybody can write to the king during this period and a whole lot of people do um uh, a whole lot of zapata de cardenas's subordinates write to the crown and say, oh, you are not going to believe what your archbishop is doing and it's bad and it's, there's going to there's, there's going to be a revolution here and we're going to be chased out um, by the natives if we keep um uh, uh, ordaining mestizos." And so the crown um puts a uh uh mandates a, a halt on ordinations of mestizos um uh, because of political issues, because of fears. And there's been some great writing about this, um, in Colombia, from, um, Juan Cobo, um, on the, for the Peruvian case, um, Felipe Juan Thomas Duva, uh, Spina Island. Um, but, uh, uh, Zapata de Cardenas never stops ordaining them. He he, uh, I, as far as I can tell, he tells the crown that he's stopping, uh, maybe he slows down a bit. Um, but, uh, he he, kind of has a plan for what he wants to happen in his archdiocese, and um, they these uh, mestizo um, uh, priests are part of it. And so there's this um, kind of continent-wide issue that takes about uh, a decade to resolve. Uh, and there's another kind of current. current you know, uh, Diego de Torres ends up with a case in front of the Council of the Indies around mestizo issues, mestizos mestizos um, as caciques. There's another major case that ends up in front of the crown about uh, mestizos as priests. Um, uh, The the major decision that ends up in the law books is one from Peru, uh, um, uh, litigated by a guy named Pedro Renjifo. But, uh, it's my opinion that uh, the big case decision comes out of Peru, but the um, I think the the Colombian issues matter a lot for the the crown's decision making. People are going to argue with me about that. I know, um, uh, but uh, but yeah. So up until about the end of the 1580s, we uh, we go through a period of years when mestizos like Diego de Torres are barred from the um, from native leadership um, where mestizos, um, are barred from being priests in the colonies. And then by the end of the 1580s, the crown reverses its decision and says that, you know, there's, there's actually no problem. Mestizos can be priests. Um, mestizos, um, can be nuns. Um, and this kind of, this moment of anti-mestizo hysteria abates. I'm not sure it entirely passes, but it seriously abates. Uh, and so uh, I, I think I cite, I can't remember exactly which chapter here, but I cite a lot of the kind of jurisprudence of a very famous um uh judge, um Solucino Pereira, who is kind of if the the one great legal mind of the colonial period, um his his opinions about uh the citizenship of mestizos and whether they should have full rights in spanish society is that it depends and that you should see if they're integrated or not and if they're integrated then yes absolutely and if they're not then maybe not and that's essentially he's writing that in the early 1600s and that's essentially the decision that um the Crown has kind of approved and that uh, local authorities in Colombia have definitely approved by the 1580s.
1: The penultimate chapter takes the the long debates and issues about the mestizo question, as well as lots of these other questions about identity, and tries to explore its legacy and consequences uh, in terms of contested rights and social status. The chapter itself, the eighth chapter is titled Mestizo Officials in the Christian Republic. And you point in particular to the development of Mestizo consciousness. So it's really interesting that you concluded that this sort of Mestizo hysteria passes, but it does leave behind something that you're identifying as Mestizo consciousness. So could you talk a little bit about what that is, and sort of how it fits into these questions of identity that we've already talked about?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. So we think about Mestizo identity in Latin America as being uh, like a nation state thing of like the late 19th century 20th century Um, there's kind of some evidence that um, that in these Colombian island cities at the kind of center of the colony there are already kind of gelling around um, a, a kind of acceptance as a as a mestizo community. And I'm mostly making this case through um, the establishment of of, a very popular confraternity and um, uh, uh, maybe the most popular confraternity uh, bills itself as a mestizo uh, confraternity in Bogota. Um, But what we see by the end of the 16th century is that there had been a real battle to keep mestizos out of uh government ecclesiastical government secular government and it had been kind of it had been if you looked up to 1575 it looked successful um but <clears throat> i point to a lot of evidence of um uh individuals of mixed ethnic descent uh becoming um uh becoming uh city aldermen, becoming uh alcalde city judges basically uh, occupying the positions in in um municipal governance that were the, the decision making positions um and uh um uh, as uh city attorneys um as um, kind of all the positions of power save uh members of there, as far as i know there aren't any members of mixed ethnic descent on the high courts and there aren't viceroys but basically everything below that level if you look for people of mixed ethnic descent you'll find them and so um There's a moment where there's a very proud movement about Mestizo identity, and it's right in these when uh, the great battles of the 1570s and 1580s are going on. Those communities of uh, those kind of like proud members of mixed, mixed ethnic descent remain present afterwards, although they stop calling themselves mestizo and stop being referred to as mestizos um and you know Joanne Rappaport in her book um talked about disappearing mestizos people who are mestizos who were labeled some places and not others and um uh, and it seems that um that perhaps this community agreed uh I I'm talking about the the Spanish settlements in the islands um uh, Bogota and perhaps its members um, outside of court agreed to stop talking about themselves in those terms. Um, uh, but it's very interesting because we have dozens and dozens of people of mixed ethnic descent occupying top positions in society, but uh, if we go to the 1590s, 1600s, 1600, 1610, uh, you know. I had to stop looking for them at some point. I kind of stopped looking for them after about 1610, but so they're there and they're occupying, uh, uh, important positions in society, but they're just not, they're just not called Mestizos anymore. Um, uh, uh I assume that's because it was an epithet that was not always welcomed by people who are on the, uh, receiving end. And that, uh, they kind of perhaps won the cultural battle of the prior decades, and that uh, the status quo after that cultural battle um, meant that uh, 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 polite people left that word out of um, daily conversation. It's hard to know that 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 part is hard to nail down. That's my
1: suspicion. Let's talk about the last chapter. Let's do it. The ninth and final chapter or final body chapter, I should say, it's titled Urban Indians in Santa Fe and Tunja of uh, 1568 to 1668. And it follows the first, uh, what, what your term in, here as indio ladinos, indigenous people who are able to secure citizenship rights of some way in the Spanish Republic of Laws in these cities. So how did they accomplish this? And in and, and your estimation, what does this tell us about colonial society in the New Kingdom of Granada?
0: So I should talk about methodologically how I found these people, because we don't have uh, census rolls. So we have one census of the city of Tumka around 1620, as far as I know, and it doesn't, um, uh, uh, it's not very explicit about categories. Um, So I actually found uh, and, and, and very rarely at any other point in time is there a list of even people who are applying to become citizens. Um, uh, what we get, what I did was I went through last wills and testaments. And, um, one of the things that individuals do when they're on their deathbeds and, um, uh, talking about how they want their, um, estates to be dispersed, they identified themselves as um, uh, uh, members of such and such community. And I read through about 200 wills made by indigenous people that have survived the centuries. um, And uh, found that a number of them called themselves citizens of the Spanish cities. Some said, uh, "I live in a native village belonging to the encomienda of such and such a Spaniard." Um, there were plenty of those, but there were also dozens of individuals who said, "I am a citizen in the Spanish city." There were some who said, "I'm a resident," and I had to nail down, um, you know, uh, you know, dictionary definitions. <laughs> uh, what's the difference between a resident, according to a seventeenth century dictionary, and a citizen? Um, uh but then uh so i was left with you know dozens of people who called them citizens themselves citizens and then dozens of other people who called themselves something else and the ones who called themselves citizens didn't explain why they were citizens uh unlike the others um and so i looked to the evidence within those last wills and testaments um and uh looked for commonalities um both amongst those who were in and those who were out, and what I found is that uh, uh, some things like mattered a whole lot. You Had to be a homeowner in the city, essentially. Um, some exceptions, but essentially you had to be a homeowner in the city. Um, uh, you had to be a good Catholic, which meant um, probably being married or at least you know having been married. Um, if you're a, a widow or a widower. Um, uh, uh, have to be, um, a a fluent speaker of Castilian, um, uh, and some other elements. So, uh, I, I think I managed to identify what made some native citizens and others not. Um, but I also had a lot of fun with this chapter. And I think, um, if I, you know, put five more years work into it, I, I think that, um, there'd be another book about the uh, diversity of the native community. I found uh, I found that these cities of Tunja and uh, Bogota were not were not just Muisca peoples, born and raised local Muisca peoples. Uh, I found a, an interesting number of individuals who called themselves Incas, um, who had uh, come probably f- from the, the the ruling families of the empire to the um, to the southwest, um, and who probably through conquest um, uh, joined the Spanish hordes and ended up um, in the northern Andes. Um, I, I also found evidence that there's um, probably uh, a regular diaspora moving back and forth between. Um, the kingdom of Quito, we now know as Ecuador, and and uh, the the Colombian Highlands, um, I I found a kind of a hint that perhaps there's uh, there are very famous painting schools down in Quito, and it seems that indigenous painters are moving from Quito um, to the Muisca lands um, because there's work for them. There and that some of them are doing very well. Um, and uh and I also found working through wills and identifying kind of where people lived in the city, who their neighbors were, who they lived with, I found out that the indigenous activists from uh the 1570s and the 1580s, 1590s, um, indigenous and mestizo activists, uh, up till 50, 60 years later, they families seem to, seem to be living near one another and intermarrying so it, i think i detected um a community uh a subcommunity within the native community um that had this kind of activist streak and that stuck together over time and i would love to um uh uh to uh kind of dig around and see if i could do further work reconstructing that community. It's it's kind of really hard work in um uh in the kind of hardest to read um documents of the colonial period that would make that happen. Um but I was uh I was really excited to have um to kind of at least hit the tip of that iceberg and have seen that there's something there.
1: It's really interesting to end in this place of Uh, in terms of the book to end in this place of such extreme diversity and multiple understandings of citizenship of belonging to the spanish city in the americas when nominally we began with like you said the sort of closing of convivencia uh, all the way back in the first chapter Uh, and i think that's one of the reasons this book is such an interesting read is that movement chronologically is far from straight and even uh, even though we sort of move back and forth across the atlantic Well, thank you so much for discussing this rich book with us at length. We only sort of scratched the surface of a lot of the content area. So I I encourage listeners to pick it up and read it. I'd love to hear from you, Max, before we go though, on what you're working on now or plan on working on next. Yeah. I, I, you know, I,
0: uh, I have a few things going. Um, I'm working on another monograph, um, that is completely different, um, uh, I well first I should say I'm kind of toying with the idea of uh, 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 putting together kind of a, a biography of Diego de Torres, kind of aimed at a wider readership. I think he's a fascinating character. Uh, I'm not um, I'm not the only one to uh, have written about him, uh, but uh, I think that kind of the your average kind of sophomore sitting in a, a colonial Latin America seminar um, deserves uh, to learn about him, and it, and if you know that that sophomore took home a book uh, for Christmas for grandma and grandpa, I think Diego Torres is a fascinating character just because he's he he wants to be an activist in the brand of. Um, uh Bartolome de las casas he really um he is really striving to do big things and um he kind of captures a spirit of the moment so um I am toying with the idea of writing that biography um uh, uh, if any editors of uh, book series want to contact me and talk about it, <laughs> I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, but I'm working on another monograph, like I said, that's com- a completely different thing, uh, just completely different. Um, although um, a, I, I kind of discovered the story about the same time that I did when I stumbled in the archives across this story about what's happening in Colombia. I'm writing a book about the galleys, uh, prison ships, in the Spanish empire uh, that uh, are uh, each composed of about 200 rowers, um, uh, convicts and slaves. They are beginning in the 1570s assigned to um, the Caribbean and the Pacific to, uh, to guard the Spanish colonies against pirates and privateers, Dutch, English, French. And But it's very interesting because they are mostly powered by convict and slave labor. And these convicts and slaves are coming from all over the empire. Uh, And I'm kind of uh, charting the history uh, of the galleys and how um, having uh, 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 a galley fleet stationed in your port, whether it be in Peru or in Colombia or in the Dominican Republic, or Mexico, how that kind of shapes port society, um, how that affects like how people move through the city, you know, these um, prison rowers uh, on the ships, those ships dock, and um, I I think about six months a year, they're actually wintering, and so how do those ports handle having... um, uh, you know, hundreds of new convicts and slaves who are maybe Muslims from the Mediterranean, who might be uh, a war captives from the Philippines, who might be um, indigenous rebels from the hinterlands, uh, uh, who might be West African slaves. How do those kind of uh, shape port society? So that's a completely different legacy. Like
1: well, I guess whichever one of those two directions you you move and finish first, we'd certainly love to have you back on to talk about, but either of those or both of those, maybe eventually. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your excellent book with us, Mark. Uh, thanks, Ethan. I really,
0: um, I really uh, appreciated your wonderful questions and thanks for, um, thanks for inviting me and uh, thanks for this opportunity.